First John chapter two. I want to thank uh, Jim last week for standing in for me. I had a yearly bout of laryngitis and couldn't speak. And I know you like longer sermons than what I could deliver. So that Sunday, so I <clears throat> stayed home and watched on live stream. And uh, it's working very well if you're home sick or not able to attend. And maybe there are some who are watching right now on live stream. We'll give you, uh, I want to encourage you to do that. It's easy to connect. We used to have a free program where there was a lot of ads that would cut us off in the middle of the, of the talking. Uh, sometimes, uh, one, one time a lady, I can't remember who told me this, they were home watching. And I, just as I got up, the ad popped up, Hair Club for Men. <laughs> Coincidental. But anyway, we don't have those anymore, so we don't have to worry about that. One thing that Neil said, he said, uh, he's talking about his son imitating him. Ephesians 5 says we are to imitate God. And that's true. My, my big question that I have for Neil was, did he make it to 50? But I'll ask him that. Afterwards, but imitating God. And today, really, what we're going to look at is the motivation behind that. What drives you? What is our motivation for imitating God, for doing these things? After my last lesson, two weeks ago, my mother spoke to me and she said, you know, it it sounds good. But at first, it sounds like you're saying That nothing is left up to us, that we have no part in our salvation, that we have no part in us becoming saved or staying saved. And then she said, I know where you're going with man's part. And she said, you usually get there before I can think too hard about it. That's another way of saying God's news of salvation is so good that it's hard to believe. Now, I think you're going to hear this over and over as we go through 1 John. It's another way of saying it kind of the opposite way. Romans chapter 3, verse 8 says, Why not say, as we've been slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim we say, let us do evil that good may result. And so if you're not listening carefully, you may come across that I'm saying sin doesn't matter. When I say it's all about God... Meaning being saved and staying saved. And doesn't mean I don't do anything. But we do things that flow out of what God has done for us. We don't do anything in order to get God's attention. We don't do anything that to cause him to have pleasure in us or to, to make him indebted to us for our salvation or for staying saved. He does it and we respond to that. Now, my mother did say, if anyone has a problem with that, you can go and talk to her. (laughs) Nice to have your mother around sometimes. But the question of the day, what we're looking at and what the text speaks to is what drives you? What motivates you to live for God? And as all the New Testament, this this is speaking to Christians. So if you're not a Christian, if you're visiting with us, or if you've yet to become a Christian, this is talking about prospectively what you could be signing up for. Something you're looking toward. 
And so we speak to the Christians here as John speaks to us. But I but it's good for you also if you're outside of Christ right now. You know, you only act out of what you believe you are. If you believe you're worthless, you're going to live a worthless life. The world stops right there and they talk about self-esteem. You need to feel good about yourself. And it, that ends up for a lot of people to give you a false sense of security, a false sense of esteem. But on the other hand, we can have a false sense of security of who we are. And we act upon that to our own embarrassment or the embarrassment of others. I'm going to give you a silly illustration here. It went up a little bit fast there. But here's the here's the illustration. If you have it within yourself to be a great ballerina. You have the physical capability to do that. You have the grace. You have the athletic ability. It takes a great athlete to be a good ballerina or a great ballerina from what I understand. But if you don't believe it, you'll never be a ballerina. Yet, on the other hand, if you are convinced you have great potential and you're five foot tall, you weigh 250 pounds and you trip over your own feet when you walk, it's going to be an embarrassment to you and to others when you try out for that ballerina troupe. Both extremes are wrong. Thinking yourself worthless or thinking yourself too great. And so the question is this. What, how, what is the key to make a clear and honest evaluation of yourself? How do you make a clear and honest evaluation? How do we do that spiritually? How do we see ourselves in the true light? And that's what the Bible does for us. That's the, the purpose of the word of God. We have a clear, truthful assessment of who we are and how we are to act. And we learn to act upon that in spite of what we believe, in spite of what our flesh and our emotions tell us. We have God's scriptures to determine what is true, what is right, regardless of how we feel. Now, Satan's going to use every means possible to pull you away from what God tells you is true. And that's what John does right here. John brings us at this time in the scriptures to remind us who we are in Christ. Let's read it together. Uh, chapter two, verse 12 through 14. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you've known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. I want to give you a few points to help us understand this text, what's going on. If you read the context, as you go through the context, it seems like there's a break here. It seems like there's an interruption. And there, there is somewhat, it's a parenthetical pause, I guess. That John stops and he's, he's going to make some statements. It's said in somewhat of a poetic way. It's, in, it's written in my Bible, lined out like poetry, but it's not really poetry. But what I think ha is happening here is John wants to remind people, the people he's writing to, the Christians, of some truths. 
And the reason is because he's been making some very black and white statements and he's going to make some more in, in a little while. And it would be easy for some people to assume that they are in a perilous relationship with God. As you start looking at the at what John, John has been saying, and saying, oh, I'm not sure about that myself. Let me give you an example. He's just been talking about this in verse uh, uh, chapter two, verse three he says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And there's some of you that will say, well, I'm not sure if I'm obeying this command, so I'm not sure if I know him. I know some of you thought that way. Or verse nine, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. I mean, how do I do that? Because there's some Christians I don't like, so maybe I'm still in darkness. I know some of you have struggled with that, and you can read on there, um, verse 11 and so on. But so we struggle with, as we look at this, and we start saying, well, where am I in, in my relationship with God? I've said several times before, it's so easy, easy for us to pull back and become me-centered in, our relation, in, in my relationship with God. Me-centered as I look at my salvation, as I look at my relationship with God. John, I think, is pulling us back and saying, I want you to remember to focus on God. I want you to be Christ centric, God centric. It's so easy to be and quickly. I may say how quickly I do this where it goes from. I know it's all about God to. Well, but it's about me, too. Instead of a security in our salvation based on God's work. We move quickly to an insecurity in our salvation based on what we don't do or what we haven't done or what we did or what we've recently done. And suddenly we, be, we become insecure in our salvation. So John, once again, he reinforces this. He pulls us back and he says, I want you to have a Christ centric focus, a God focus in the fact of your salvation and your walk with him, your life with him. Now, some people wonder about the different categories here. We have children and fathers and young men. And to further complicate the, the problem, the second children is a different word. You don't see it in the English, but it's a different word. The first children is a certain word and the second one's a, a different word. So we have four different words. And it's not in chronological order. We have children, then fathers, then young men. So some people say, well, why isn't the other way around? So who are these people? Now, I'm going to give you my opinion. You can read all the commentaries, get your own opinion. But this was my opinion here. The first one in verse 12, I write to you, dear children, is the same word that you find in chapter two, verse one. And he's talking about all Christians. And, and John will use this word several times in, in, in uh, his letter here. And he's talking to all Christians here. These are his dear little children in the faith. And I've shared with you how this word is the diminutive word. It's like saying uh, instead of Patricia, Patty, instead of uh, George, you say Georgie is a, a, a term of endearment as he speaks to us there here. And he's speaking to all Christians. The second two terms are not exclusively male. We in the this century are a little sensitive about Male and female. We, you know, if we say mankind, we feel like we're, we're uh, demeaning womankind. But the first century, they weren't that concerned about that. And when they said man, they meant men, men and women. And so I think here he is talking about those who are mature when he says fathers. And he's meaning male and female. And when he speaks to the younger men, he's talking about those who 
are young in the faith, both male and female. It's almost like, say, a ringmaster standing up and saying, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. And he's just including everyone, children of all ages. And so fathers refer to the older in the faith. The young men refer to those who are younger in the faith. And then this last word, children, I believe, refers to the youngest Christians of all, the recent converts. And so as we read this, he's referring to every Christian, no matter where you are. Each statement overlaps itself. The mature, the fathers, know him, but so do the younger. The older ones have overcome the evil one, just like the younger ones have, as we'll see in just a few minutes. But he's making a statement, generalities, and making a statement of generalities. So he can't take each statement and says, well, this only applies to the mature. This only applies to those who are younger in the faith. It applies to everyone. Last thing that will help us understand the text. There's two tenses here for I write. The NIV doesn't show this very well. Uh, doesn't bring this out. But the first three times he says, I write, he is writing in the present tense. I am writing right now. The second three are in a tense called the aorist tense. We don't really have that. But it's a past tense, a sort of a past tense. And it means, as some of your translations may say, I have written. So we have I write, I write, I write. I have written, I have written, I have written. There's lots of different explanations of that, but here's mine. I believe he's doing this. He's saying, I'm telling you this, and I've told you this. I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. And as a preacher, I relate to that. Maybe that's why it stepped, uh, uh, jumped out at me. Because I have said things over and over again. Important things have to be stated over again. And sometimes I'm a little sensitive and feel like, well, I've said this so many times. And I'm wondering if I'm boring people. I'm wondering if people are saying I've heard that so many times, but I'm never, it never ceases to amaze me. Sometimes I'll say something I've said, I think, dozens of times. And somebody will come up to me and say, I've never heard that before. That's the first time it, that hit me. I've never heard that before. And that's because we listen in various ways. And sometimes we're here and sometimes we're not, you know, mentally. Sometimes we're... Thinking about other things. Sometimes we're physically not here when I say something. And so John is saying, I've written about this. I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. And so he makes some absolutely incredible statements that with a little thought of your own, the applications are just going to become apparent. What John does in these two verses is give us an incredible dose of encouragement. The German philosopher Goethe said this, correction does much, but encouragement does more. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He says, I write those who speak, they speak for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. And this is what we're going to get today. Strengthening, encouragement and comfort. We're going to be talking about God-centered motivation. It's not only it's not only encouragement, but it's actually motivation. As I said, we only operate out of who we are, who we believe we are. We cannot take a confident step of progress in the Christian walk without assurance of what God has done for us and what God continues to do in your life. If I know I'm already victorious, I will live a victorious life. 
If I'm unsure if God accepts me in my walk, then my journey with him is going to be unsure. And so here John reminds us who we are and what God has achieved through us, in us, through Christ. God-focused motivation. Let's look at these together. He first says to the children, your sins are forgiven. Little children. He's speaking to all of us here. He said this in chapter 2, verse 1, as I referred to a moment again. I'm writing this because your sins have been forgiven. And already in chapter 1, verse 7, he says, your sins have, are continually cleansed. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus continually cleanses you of your sins. And now he's taking it again. He's expanding as John does here. He's making an expansion on his thought here. He says, you little children, Christians, your sins have been forgiven. They've been put away. They've been released. They're gone. As far as the east is from the west, he says in, the, in, in Psalms 103, your sins have been removed from me. How far is the east from the west? Immeasurable. Micah chapter 7, verse 19 says they've been hurled. One translation says hurled into the depths of the ocean. Have you ever been in the middle of the ocean? I've been in the middle of the ocean, middle of the Pacific Ocean. You can't see land anywhere. The, 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 The bottom, I don't know how far down it is, is dark blue water. And standing on a ship, I threw something out in the water. One time I threw a bottle with a message in it. I bet you that bottle is in the depths of the ocean now. And God says, listen, this is where your sins are. I pearled them into the depths of the ocean. Gone. Your sins are gone. They're gone. They're not around anymore. And so, my dear children... Why don't you believe it? Ah, dear Maggie. Dear Jimmy. Sweet Carly. Dear Petey. I write this so that it will get deep in your mind, in your heart. Your sins are not around here any longer. They're sunk into the ocean. And it has nothing to do how well you live up to the laws. The laws demands it doesn't matter how wonderful your life is, how good you are. It has nothing to do with that. Because he says, listen, your sins are forgiven. They're gone on account of his name's sake. It has nothing to do with you. His name's sake. The name of Jesus is not magic. Some people treat it as a magical word. The name of Jesus, you know, as if saying the word Jesus, something magical happens. What this means is the very character of Christ. That's what name means. His character for Christ's sake, for his character, for what he did, for what he did for you, how he lived his life, his sacrifice for for you. Not what you did because of what he did. Your sins are gone. They've disappeared. 
You participate in his life, his death, his resurrection. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were raised to walk a new life. That's, that's not, I don't believe it's symbolic. People say that's symbolic, but if you read the text, it's saying this is what happened. It's an actual happening. When you were buried with him, you were with him. You participated in his death. It was a participation, not a symbolic participation. It was a, a, a participation. You came in contact with him literally at that time. In a spiritual way, you became involved with him and you rose a new person, a new life. It's real. It's as if Jesus is saying, when I cried out on the cross, it is finished. I really meant it. It is finished. The work is complete. It's done. It's over. Sin's forgiven. My dear children, I write this to you because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. And then he says to the fathers, you have known him from the beginning. Those who are mature in the faith. Twice he says this. Maybe the memory's a little short or something. But twice he says this, you have known him from the beginning. He says, I'm writing this to you because you've known him from the beginning. And I've written it to you before. And I've told you and I'm telling you again, you've known him from the beginning. This speaks of relationship. It speaks of maturity. This word known means an intimate relationship. You recognize him. You've spent time in his word. You've watched him work in your life. You've watched him work in the life of others. You've seen the devastation of sin in people's lives. You've seen your growth and dependency on him. You know him. And some of you are thinking, but I don't know him. What did you just sing? Where's my, here it is. What did you just sing? You just sang about things you know about him. Um, You are beautiful beyond, what was it? I don't know, prescription. Prescriptions, not prescriptions. <laughs> Too marvelous for words. You were talking about the marvelous wonder of him. I stand in awe. What do you mean you stand in awe? They just you're just spouting out words? No, you you do stand in awe. When you look and contemplate God, you are in awe of him. You know him. For the Lord is what? A righteous God. Perfect in all his ways. You know that. You sing that. How deep the Father's love for us. What's it? Uh, how vast beyond all measure. Yeah, and then it goes and talks that he should give his only son for, for me. Amazing. You do know him. And you've known him from the beginning, he says to those who are mature in the faith. You've known him since the beginning of your walk with him. When you, when you first came to know him, when you first came into Christ, you've known him from that period of time. For some mature Christians, and this is talking about those who are mature in Christ, that represents many years. And there's some here who have been Christians for many, many years. But, you know, in Christ, you can mature faster. It's not talking about physical maturity here. It's talking about spiritual maturity. And for some who are younger in the faith, who have spent time with the Lord, who have spent a quality time, their maturity can grow faster. And you know from that very beginning, it's just been a few years ago physically, but spiritually it's, a long, it's been a long walk with you. And young men, he says, those who are young in the faith, he makes three statements here. He says, you've overcome the evil one. And he said that twice. 
You are strong. The word of God abides in you. He's speaking to those who are in the prime of their spiritual life. And again, it's not about physical age here. There's some older people in this room today who are physically older, but spiritually, this is where they are right now. And they may come to your mind. They're young in the faith. And so they they represent this. They need this message right now. They represent uh, their life represents this. They have overcome the evil one. You may find this stunning, but you should not fear Satan. You realize that you should not fear Satan. He has been overcome. He has been defeated. Now, don't get mad at me yet. He does throw temptation at you. Okay, he throws a curveball at you. And so the Bible says there are some things you must flee from. And he, he begins to he lists them. Here's some of them. He says, flee youthful lust, flee immorality, flee idolatry, flee the love of money. When those temptations come to you, the Bible says, here's your reaction to that. Don't stick around and see how it is. Flee from those things. Got it? There are some temptations that are thrown at us that we don't say, I have no fear of Satan. I have no fear of this temptation. The Bible says flee from those things. But you know what it says about Satan? He says, if we resist Satan, he flees from us. That's the best picture I could get of fleeing. Some of you have seen that movie, haven't you? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here's the interesting thing. You know what James says before that verse and after that verse? Throw it up on the screen. Submit yourself then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Sandwiched between resisting Satan is God-centered, God-focused. You see the, the message again coming from James this time? You submit yourself to God. And when you submit yourself to God, you can stand up to Satan and he will flee from you. It's not over your own power. It's the power that you are submitting to God. Because you're submitting to God, he will flee from you. Not because you're so good. See how we do that so quickly. We switch to ourselves. Oh, I resist the devil and he will flee from me. We become so me-centered even in resisting Satan. He says, no, submit yourself to God. Then you resist the devil. And then after you resist the devil and he flees from him, then you come near to God. You have a God-centered, God-focused life. I'm writing you this, he says. I've already written it to you. I've told you before. I'm telling you again. And then he says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. These two are vitally connected to each other. You're strong. Like David's mighty men, you're strong. You're his mighty men, his men of valor. You're strong in your faith. You're fit for spiritual warfare. This is those who are young in the faith. This is how they are. They're ready for a battle. You know, you, you ever see the, the, the newer Christians? They're ready to fight. Some of the older ones are just you know, not as ready to fight as the other younger ones. But these younger ones are strong. The word of God abides in them. You go to uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 6. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then he says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the de- devil's uh, schemes. And he goes on talking about all these different Armor parts that we put on, and we don't have time to go into detail of that, but it's, it's basically putting on God's word, the abiding in God's word. Your strength is not because you abide in yourself, but because 
or, or because of your ability, but it is because you abide. You that word, the best I, I, one one way I like to say it, you hunker down in God's word. And when we hunker down in God's word, when we dig into God's word, when we when we live into God's word, his word abides in us and we can overcome. We and we overcome Satan. We're strong. And then last of all, he says, little children, the end of um, dear children in um, 13, the second part of 13. He says, oh, that's why people are laughing. Yeah, they it's, it's with people between two and ten. I had to take advantage of this. Put all my grandchildren up there. All right. This is about the age that he's talking about. And, I, and I'm thinking as I'm watching my little grandchildren, what will they remember of these ages? What do you remember between age two and ten? Not a whole lot. But if you're raised in a loving home, you remember those who raised you. That's what you remember. You might remember events, little things. But even, even, you know, even my memory of punishment is based in love. Even all my memories are, I remember racing my dad once. I remember exactly where we were racing him. We raced from the mailbox to the door in New Zealand, Wellington. I thought he'd let me beat him, but he didn't. <laughs> no, I, but all the, you just remember little events, but it's based in love. And so that's what John is doing here. He's trying to remind those who are brand new in the faith those who are still feeding on the milk of the word, they haven't gotten to the solid word yet. They, they say, he says, listen, you know God. You haven't known him for long. You may not know him well, but listen, you know him. You know, some people can get discouraged when they're young in the faith and look at those who are older in the faith and they say, well, I, I don't know if I'll ever get there. John says, listen, young ones. Listen, little children who are young in the faith, you know him. You are as saved as that older Christian. You're not on the back burner. God has fully saved you as he has those who, are, who have known him from years. From the least to the greatest, you know the Lord. That's what Jeremiah said. In Hebrews, he, he brings this out in Hebrews chapter 8. And I won't read the whole thing, but he's bringing out this prophecy and he says this. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or his brother, know the Lord, saying, know the Lord. Why? Because they will all know me. If you are in Christ, you know the Lord. You were taught about the Lord and then you came into him and now you know the Lord. And then he says, for, listen carefully, and then we're going to be done, almost done. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. He's gone full circle. From my little children, everyone, your sins forgiven to this. You will know the Lord. He is saying your sins are forgiven from the least of you to the greatest. I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sin no more. And notice the tense of these verses of these verbs. He does not say you will one day know the Lord or that you will be strong if you do certain things or you will overcome the evil one if you do certain things, if you live a certain way. The tense is called the perfect tense. It's a past action 
that has present results. He says something happened to you in the past. You came to know the Lord and you know the Lord. The results of that knowledge three weeks ago, 10 years ago, 30 years ago, the results of that knowledge is still with you. He forgave you in 1962 and he forgives you right now. The results of that forgiveness stays with you. It continues. When you placed your faith in Jesus, when you saw what he did and you responded to that faith, when you said, I cannot do this by myself. I rely on you. I put my trust in you. What do you want me to do, Lord? He said, just repent. Change your mind. Be immersed. Washed away your sins. You said, okay, I'll do it. And you did that. You responded. And for some reason, we think then it's up to us after that. We stop living as we should. The other two are in the present tense. You are, you continue to be strong. You are strong. You continue to be strong. The word of God abides in you and continues to be, uh, to abide in you. The good news, as I have said, is so good, you have a hard time believing it. We understand we are forgiven in our minds. But we don't feel it sometimes. And we don't live up to it sometimes. Or we resist it. We believe we're forgiven. And then some way we think, well, that excuses sin. So I can't forget. I can't really believe that because some way it excuses sin. We all view at times the evil one as someone more powerful than us. Someone who we can't overcome. We don't believe we really know the Lord or that we're really strong or that his word lives in us. And it's because in those times of doubt, we live by sight and not by faith. What does it mean to live by faith? Paul reminded us that we're a people that only not only came to Christ in faith, but once we came to Christ in faith, we live by faith. We don't live by sight. I can't make it any more of my own power, we said as we came to Christ. I give up. I turn my life over to you. You washed me clean. I responded in faith and trust. And John and James, Peter and Paul, they all said, and this is how you continue to live your life. Some way, somehow. We become man-focused, me-focused, so quickly. I come giving up. I come to God in faith and say, I give up. Take me as I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. And we respond in faith. And some of you have done this this year. Gone to that baptistry back there and put under that water. And you came up and you were smiling. So sins have been washed away. And then you say, now, let me live my life for God. <laughs> Instead of let me live my life for God. It's subtle. But boy, it's important. It's, you've got to be God-centered in your walk with Him. Here's the reality of life. Here's what is really real. That's what the word truth means. 
It doesn't matter what your age in Christ is. You know him. Your sins are forgiven. You have overcome the evil one. You are strong. The word of God lives into you. And here's what you got to do. You respond to that in faith. And you watch your faith grow. I'm not making this up. It's what John says. If you don't believe it, you aren't going to live it. If you don't believe you've overcome the evil one, you're going to live like you haven't. But if you believe that God's power is in you, that he lives in you, that he exists, you have overcome the evil one. And you have whether you believe it or not, by the way. God's going to try and teach you some way or the other that your sins truly are forgiven. You know, I don't know why someone who is outside of Christ and sees their need doesn't respond to that message. I really don't. I guess I do. <laughs> Pride, arrogance. I can do it on my own. Still me focused, I guess. But, you know, the message is so beautiful. It's so good. You know, not only do you, are your sins forgiven, you can't do it on your own right now. But guess what? Your whole life. You don't have to do it on your own. You don't have to live up to anything. You just live for God. Learn how to imitate him based on this motivation of what he's done for me. I don't think I've done a real good job of this. Let's start again. No. <laughs> really, I mean, you know, this, when, I, when I think about this and I see some looks, some looks that say, hmm, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure. All right. We've got three more chapters in John. We'll get it. Because he's going to repeat this over and over. You are, your sins are forgiven. If we can, if you're outside of Christ, you want to come into Christ, this is a great opportunity to do that. We'll take your confession. We'll walk back to the baptistry. We'll immerse you into Christ. Your sins will be forgiven. And then you can walk that forgiven life the rest of your, uh, your days. Or if you're a Christian, you need to respond in any way. We give that, that opportunity as we stand and as we sing.